Thank you to you at home for joining us this hour. We are beginning with some breaking news this, news this evening. The Israeli government has voted to accept a deal that would free 50 hostages currently being held by the terrorist group Hamas. That is according to the office of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Now, the exact details of this deal with Hamas are not yet known. What we do know is that the 50 hostages are all women and children, and they would be exchanged for 150 Palestinian women and children who are currently being held in Israeli prisons. The deal also includes a four-day ceasefire to allow for those exchanges and for more humanitarian aid to enter Gaza. That ceasefire also may have the potential to be extended pending the release of additional hostages. Joining us now from the region is NBC News correspondent Aaron McLaughlin, who is in Tel Aviv tonight. Aaron, what are you hearing about the latest uh, in terms of the contours of this deal? Well, we are learning more from the Israeli government. They just put out a statement. Let me just read you what they have to say, uh, saying that the government of Israel is obligated to return home all of the hostages. Tonight, the government has approved the outline of the first stage of achieving this goal, according to which at least 50 hostages, women and children, will be released over four days, during which a pause in the fighting will be held. The release of every additional 10 hostages will result in one additional day in the pause. The government of Israel, the IDF, and the security services will continue the war in order to return home all of the hostages, complete the elimination of Hamas, and ensure that there will be no new threat to the state of Israel from Gaza. Now, what's notably absent from this latest announcement from the Israeli government is any mention of the Palestinian prisoners, the 150 women and children that, according to a senior Israeli official, uh, was part of this agreement to be released. And if that is still, in fact, the case, and again, we are waiting for more details to be released, specifically announcement from the government of Qatar, a key intermediator, in, intermediary in the negotiations. But if those Palestinian prisoners are, in fact, part of this deal, then that will tack on another 24 hours in which the victims of those attacks, Israeli victims, will have the opportunity to challenge this agreement to the Israeli Supreme Court. Now, in the past, when this has happened, the Supreme Court has sided with the government and ratified this deal. Uh, but again, we're waiting for more of those really critical specifics, as are uh, the, the families of the hostages. This is an open and gaping wound for them. They've endured this agonizing pain for more than six weeks Earlier today, I was speaking to Thomas Hand. He's a single father of nine-year-old Emily Hand. On October 7th, Emily was staying over at a friend's house. Hamas militants stormed her kibbutz, kidnapping her. Initially, Thomas, told, Thomas was told that she was dead. Weeks later, the Israeli military came back and told him that she was in fact alive, believed to be a hostage in Gaza. I was exchanging text messages with him earlier today. He texted me, quote, so far, so good. But the fact is he, he doesn't know. There has been no proof of life for Emily. So there's no way for him at this point to know if she is in fact part of this deal. Although we understand that once and if the Israelis get the list of the released hostages as part of this agreement, then uh, the families will be individually notified. A lot of the agonizing wait continues. It's quite clear. Uh, we will be back for more from Tel Aviv, Aaron McLaughlin, thank you for that essential reporting. I want to turn now to Chris O'Leary, former director of hostage recovery for the U.S. government and now 
Senior Vice President of Global Operations at the Sufan Group. Chris, thanks for being here. Um, understanding that there's a lot we don't owe yet, what are your initial impressions of the deal that's been announced? So I think it's likely that it's going to go through. I mean, there's too much domestic pressure in Israel and international pressure as well um, for the Israelis to agree to this deal. There are some concessions that they do not want to make. Mm -hmm. The uh, suspension of collection of intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance, the drones, um, is not something that any uh, military member in their right mind would want to agree to. Um, Hamas attacked Israel, you know, a month and a half ago. Um, and now you want to close your eyes for five days and assume that they're just going to do the right thing. Um, that's the the challenge here. There's friction between the hostage recovery, the negotiated release, and the military requirements and goals to continue to pursue uh, the defeat of Hamas, but also uh, regain control of the other hostages. Some of these hostages will need to be rescued at some point. What? How optimistic are you about the sort of long-term prospects for all of the hostage given hostages, given there are 50 here? I think that's roughly a fifth of the hostages that we know about who are being held in Gaza. So I don't want to rain on the parade today. This is good news um, once it goes through for the victims, the 50 victims that get released, um, and also for their families, obviously. But it's also an ominous sign. If it took this long to release 50 women and children, um, and Hamas asked for these many demands— um, how difficult is it going to be to get the IDF members out? Uh, and that's probably going to require the defeat of Hamas or hostage rescue efforts um, as we go down the line. Can I can I ask a, a basic question? But, you know, given the sort of asymmetrical numbers from previous hostage releases where one hostage has been one Israeli hostage has been exchanged for, I think, up to fifteen hundred other hostages is it is it really a bad sign that it's 50 to 150? I mean, g- given history here, it could have been. I mean, may, t- tell me why you think this is uh, a lot of demands relative to other negotiations. It's not. Um, that's not an unreasonable number. Uh, Hamas has different priorities now than they did back then. Their priorities now are to buy time. Yeah. Um, they are looking to survive to fight another day. They're looking as they're buying time for the international support and domestic support in Israel um, for the military offensive to erode. It already has. We've seen that. Um, We're also looking uh, at increasing friction between the hostage families and the military goals. And so, you know, these these two primary objectives to defeat Hamas and recover the hostages couldn't be more in in competition with each other. Um, Hamas is looking to buy time to change the narrative as they can from who's the monster to who's the victim and invert that. And they've had some success to this point. Well, yes. And some people would argue that Israel's, you know, uh, assault uh, in Gaza that I think has taken 14,000 lives has assisted most directly in that. But I do want to ask about how this so far has come to be. Netanyahu is saying he asked President Biden to intervene and that Biden, I believe, improved the terms, according to Netanyahu's office. What could that mean? We've heard the Qataris mentioned as a sort of the principal interlocutors uh, interlocutors in all of this. Where does the American government fit in in something like this? So the American government has an incredible standard for hostage recovery, which was born out of the uh, the Obama administration after a failure. And we, um, credit to President Obama, did a complete review of how we uh, address these cases and did a complete overhaul in the U.S. government. Now we have a whole of government approach, you know, where we have all the intelligence agencies, special operations, diplomacy, 
all synchronized with our partners as well. The reason we have such a robust relationship with the Qataris is because we've worked these things together. The U.S. has an influential role in this, but at the end of the day, the American hostages are also Israeli citizens. Mm -hmm. um, we are only there to influence and steer these things, as are the Qataris, um, but we really can't make any demands here. Um, we are only in a, a position where we can assist, advise, uh, you know, provide intelligence, um, but we can't really demand. In terms of the timetable here, we know that there are various stipulations that are still being worked out. What is your expectation when you say the families of military hostages are going to maybe have to wait a long time? I mean, if you were advising them, if they were coming to you saying when, when, I mean, if there is any kind of timeline, how would you set expectations? I would manage, you know, their expectations and be direct with them. And again, the U.S. government has a team of counselors that work with the families, and this was built in as well. You have to be straight and direct with them. You have to share intelligence with them. You have to um, give them counseling and support. I mean, this is an incredibly hard time for all of these folks. They're not sleeping. Well, they can't go on for years without sleeping. Yeah. So you have to manage their health and manage their well-being. You have to provide them with aid and support because these people can't work. They can't go back to their normal lives. Um, and you have to make them part of the recovery process, too. You have to integrate them into the negotiations. They have some ideas. They know their family members. This one's a little more unique than the individual cases, but they still have to be part of the process. Well, all we know is the next 24, 48, 72 hours are going to be moments of elation for some some families and just incredibly dashed hopes for others. But we focus on the good news that we know at this hour, which is that a deal has been approved. Chris O'Leary, thank you so much for your time and expertise on all of this. Good to be with you. We have a lot more ahead tonight. Former Trump officials are again sounding the alarm about dangers of a second Trump administration. Is anyone listening? Plus, are the courts treading lightly when it comes to trying cases against a once and possibly future president? We're going to have more on that right after the break. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents... Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Today, one of Donald Trump's co-defendants, Harrison Floyd, was back in Georgia state court. In an echo of what we have seen from former President Trump himself, Mr. Floyd has been making posts on social media discussing and even tagging witnesses in this case. And prosecutors allege that that could be witness intimidation. The issue is seen as so important that Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis herself showed up to make the state's case. And she was incredibly direct. The state is requesting so that there's no um, mistake as to what we're asking, that his bond be revoked and that he be remanded back into custody for violating three conditions of the bond. 
D.A. Willis asked for Harrison Floyd to be put back in jail for making statements that could intimidate witnesses. Now, ultimately, the judge in this case denied that request and instead imposed a broader and stricter order limiting Mr. Floyd's speech. The judge ordered Floyd to not make any public statements concerning any co-defendants or witnesses and to delete the social media posts where he had made those statements already. But the thing that I think is important here is that jail was on the table. Harrison Floyd is charged with being essentially a pawn in Donald Trump's larger alleged plot to overturn the results of the 2020 election. And Floyd's social media reach is puny compared to Trump's massive bully pulpit. But nonetheless, jail was on the table and very much could still be on the table in the future for Harrison Floyd. Yet jail time is not even really being considered for Mr. Trump, either in Fulton County, Georgia, where his own bond conditions are more specific than Harrison Floyd's were, or in federal court in D.C., where a little over a month ago, Trump was given a narrow gag order in Jack Smith's federal election interference case. Now, the broad strokes of that gag order barred Trump from doing anything that could intimidate witnesses, threaten court staff, or threaten prosecutors involved in that case. Trump's legal team has managed to get that gag order frozen twice now while it appeals to higher courts. And you might think that given the fact that Trump is very actively appealing this gag order, that he would try to somehow show it wasn't needed and wouldn't do anything that could be seen as intimidating witnesses or court staff or Jack Smith and his prosecutorial team. But you would be wrong. This was Trump at a campaign event earlier this month. We have deranged Jack Smith. Have you ever heard of him? He's a lovely man. He's a lovely man. You ever see him with the purple little thing? He's a lovely man. The Trump-hating prosecutor in the case, he's, uh, his wife and family despise me much more than he does, and he decides, I think he's about a 10. They're about a 15 on a scale of 10. If that mention of Jack Smith's family was not a clear enough threat, Trump followed it up two days later with this post on Truth Social. Deranged Jack Smith will end up in a mental institution by the time of my next term as president and by the time that is successfully completed. Trump has also name-checked and posted intimidating statements about potential witnesses, including his former Attorney General Bill Barr, his former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, and his former Vice President Mike Pence, as well as his former lawyers. Jenna Ellis and Sidney Powell. But again, the idea of revoking Trump's bond, of punishing him with jail time for this kind of intimidation, that has yet to be put on the table in either case. And while Harrison Floyd's hearing today ended with the judge imposing a broader and stricter order controlling Harrison Floyd's speech, Donald Trump had his own hearing about his gag order yesterday. And the end result was that the appeals court may narrow Trump's gag order. One of the judges on the panel said they have to use a careful scalpel to carve out a narrow order that protects witnesses while not inhibiting Trump as a presidential candidate. So you can see the legal system is treading very, very carefully here. One would say maybe even lightly. And the net result of that is that Donald Trump gets to have it both ways. At campaign rallies, Trump gets to use the cases against him to score political points. Every time I'm indicted, I consider it a great badge of honor because I'm being indicted for you. Thanks a lot, everybody. I appreciate it. 
Thank you. And meanwhile, in court, he is using his campaign as a shield to ensure treatment that no other defendant would get. So how is Donald Trump held accountable here? And how can our legal system protect the people he could intimidate in the meantime? I mean, this is, after all, what he posted today. Why do you think that Fani and Alvin and Leticia and, of course, the deranged one, Jack Smith, took so long and very publicly, they leaked everything, started their work so late, they could have started it years ago. It's called election interference and prosecutorial misconduct. Joining me now is former acting U.S. Solicitor General Neil Katyal. Neil, thank you for helping me understand how the court is approaching the complicated subject, the complicated defendant that is Donald Trump. First, let me ask you what your expectation is for this appeals court ruling on on the gag order. Is it going to be narrower? Just how punitive is it going to be? So the argument yesterday, Alex, was in front of our nation's second highest court, three extraordinarily well-prepared, well-respected judges. And I think the ultimate bottom line was that Trump's lawyer could not answer the simple questions that the court posed, um, including like, what is your standard? Can defendants, criminal defendants just say anything they want and the like? Um, I think that basically at the end of the argument, I was left thinking that Trump will lose. Um, For the first time in American history, a former president will be gagged by a court. I think the order will be narrowed a little bit because Judge Chutkin, who's the trial judge, said that Trump couldn't attack the prosecutor, Jack Smith. And I think there was some cause for concern among the judges. That wasn't really something Trump's lawyer pushed as much, but it's something that the court brought up on its own. And so I think ultimately, though, Trump loses um, and uh, and Donald Trump will be gagged. And if he violates those gag orders, we will get into the situation of possible jail time being on the line. Do you, can you talk more about that, Neil, possible jail time? I mean, it really feels like the courts have gone out of their way to not to not go there as yet. Understandably, I understand it's it's complicated. But at the same time, he isn't being treated like any other defendant here. And he is loath to obey anybody's orders. I wonder if you think we are going to get to the point where there has to be a real robust discussion about jailing the former president. So, so, Alex, I could not agree with you more about what you just said. I mean, if you want to see unequal treatment in our judicial system, look no further than the way the courts have treated Donald Trump or indeed his co-defendant today. They're afforded leniency and second chances that the average defendant could never dream of. And time and time again, we're seeing Trump and his co-defendants get the benefit of the doubt. And I do think that that patience is wearing thin among the courts as well. And so I do think that if Trump, after this new revised gag orders imposed, violates it in an intentional way, which, you know, I suspect he very well may do because he's incapable of following, uh, you know, any sort of rules, decorum, good behavior and the like. I do think that we're going to get we're going to see that. And, you know, yesterday I was talking, Alex, with Lawrence O'Donnell and I said, look, you know, the country's watching this gag order hearing and whatever Donald Trump does other defendants in other cases are going to do, whether it's a mafia case, a drug case, whatever, that this sets a precedent for norm-breaking behavior. And lo and behold, we didn't even have to wait a day 
to see the corrosive effects of Trump's arguments already, because in Fulton County, Georgia, Harrison Floyd was basically saying, yeah, it's my First Amendment right to intimidate witnesses. Um, this is, you know, out of control already. And I do think the courts will put it back in, put, put this back in the bottle, the toothpaste in the tube or whatever, but they have to act quickly. I, I, I want to ask you kind of like a broader ethical question, which is the, the notion of running for office and how deferential you think the courts should be on anything from a gag order to the scheduling of the trials. I mean, Fonnie Willis made the point that, you know, what did she say? It would be a really sad day if when you're under investigation for a shoplifting charge, you go run for city council to stop the investigation. I, I, we joke about, I mean, I, to some degree, I think there is a little levity embedded in that, but it's not an unserious uh, possibility. The idea that you shield yourself from prosecution by running for higher office. Trump is the first of many. Uh, Trump breaks the mold, I should say, but could be, uh, you know, at the vanguard here. And I, and I wonder how, you know, concerned the court should be about the way in which he is effectively weaponizing his candidacy for his defense. They should be gravely concerned, Alex. I think you're exactly right. I mean, remember, Donald Trump escaped indictment before when he was president because he said, and Bill Barr, his attorney general, said, a sitting president cannot be indicted. So then he leaves office, you know, not necessarily voluntarily, but he eventually leaves. And now his argument is a guy who's running for president can't be indicted. And then if he wins, he's going to say again, a sitting president can't be indicted. There's no more fundamental principle in our law. We go back to early Anglo-American history, go back to what our founders thought. No person is above the law. That is, you know, why we fought the revolution against King George III. What Donald Trump is trying to do is reenact it. And he's enacting it through these, you know, bogus immunity claims from prosecution. And then, as you say, Alex, also by the scheduling. Like, it is baffling to me why Georgia is going to trial in August of 2024 on the Fulton County case. I don't understand that. Samuel Bankman-Fried was, you know, indicted just a few months ago. He's already been convicted. You know, I had the privilege of doing the prosecution, the George Floyd prosecution against Derek Chauvin. That murder happened three years ago. We've already, you know, had the trial, had the appeal, and had the United States Supreme Court yesterday reject Derek Chauvin's appeal. Why Trump gets these massive delays both in the Fulton County cases as well as in the uh, as well as in the Mar-a-Lago case uh, on stolen documents is beyond me. I can't begin to understand it. Yeah, um, the system may be rigged in Trump's favor, which is effectively the opposite of what he's been saying. Neil Katyal, thank you so much for your time tonight, my friend. It's great to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Happy holidays. Coming up, President Biden is involved in two battles: the war in Gaza and the war about Gaza. Congressman Jamal Bowman joins me to talk about what comes next for Democrats. But first, Republicans can't seem to quit Donald Trump no matter how many Republicans tell them they should. More on that after the break. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. 
Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. would you vote for? Now, there may be some people that don't like my attitude, but my attitude is what gets us there. For any other candidate, 91 felony charges and reckless defiance in the face of that might spell political death, but not for a one Donald J. Trump. The Washington Post this week spoke to 16 of Trump's former advisors who are wondering whether it is even worth trying to stop him. This is his former chief of staff, John Kelly. I came out and told people the awful things he said about wounded soldiers, and it didn't have half a day's bounce. You had his attorney general, Bill Barr, come out and not a half a day's bounce. If anything, his numbers go up. There is no better example of Trump's enduring grip on his party than the behavior of newly elected Speaker Mike Johnson, a man who has already seen the legislative reality that nothing can get done in the House without Democratic votes. But Speaker Johnson is not likely to stay Speaker Johnson without the support of MAGA Republicans. And so Mr. Johnson has doubled down on his allegiance to Trump by visiting Trump at Mar-a-Lago last night. There is the photo. So, yes, alarm bells are being sounded, but apparently no one in the party is listening. Joining us now is Michelle Goldberg, opinion columnist for The New York Times, and Ben Smith, editor-in-chief of Semaphore and recent author of Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and the and delusion in the billion dollar race to go viral. I'm here to move. You were there. I'm here. <laughs> I'm here to move units for both of you. New York Times copies and books. Um, let me ask you, Ben. Just I, I feel like I know where Michelle sits on this because I asked you during the break. But Mike Johnson going to Mar-a-Lago to kiss the ring. Now, on some level, not surprising. He's a MAGA guy. At least now he is. But that's a, an indignity that not even Kevin McCarthy visited upon himself when he was speaker. I mean, there, there were parts of Kevin McCarthy that were still part of a previous Republican Party. But I mean, it's Donald Trump's Republican Party. Mar-a-Lago is the capital. You have to make that pilgrimage. It's just totally obvious. There's no choice. There's no other party. And, and, and I think the, the thick irony, Michelle, is that the only reason anything gets done for Mike Johnson and, and his in his speakership is because Democrats do the right thing and preserve the sort of general functions of government. But, but it's not just an irony. It's also kind of, uh, I hate to use this word, but a dialectic yes. in that. Thank you for that. Because he, you know, because he does all these things that make the base of the, in order to kind of show any semblance of governing, he has to do things things that make the base of the Republican Party unhappy. And so then he has to go and kind of shore up his bona fides because he's going to have to do more things to make them unhappy. So, you know, there's this because they don't they care and many of them care much more about kind of rhetoric and style and culture than governing. You know, it's this sort of two step that you can pass a bunch of bills that maybe they're not happy with as long as you show the proper slavish fealty. Well, right. It's this, the, the, the message is all that matters. The actual work is sort of an asterisk to everything else. It sort of seems like I mean, I wonder, Ben, when you go through the laundry list of people who have said Donald Trump is a danger to democracy. I mean, Mike Johnson was like sort of on that list in 2015 himself. And the fact that it has had so little resonance inside the party, do you think that Mr. Trump's latest request to do away with the debates 
um, the Republican debates um, and, and suggest that he I mean, it's unclear whether he himself would do a debate if he's the nominee. Does that matter? Oh, yeah. I think the whole thing's going to come crashing down. Right now. <laughs> this is it. The debate thing is going to be the thing. No, of course not. And I think his supporters, I mean, I think it's, it's the same as it was in 2016, actually. Almost more, it is more like 2016 than like 2020 in that people who, he is a vehicle for expressing anger at the status quo and any criticism of him that is represents the status quo seems to reinforce his support. Does there... If that is true, that that none of it matters because he has become an emotional vehicle for American grievance and sense of injustice and victimhood, what then is the utility? <laughs> what does Biden do, Michelle? How how do you win? If presuming both that Biden will be the nominee and and Trump is the as the nominee, how do you combat such? Let me push, An back. Elusive enemy. Let me push Go ahead. back a little bit on this idea that kind of nothing matters, which is something that we heard a lot from 2016 to 2020, because I actually think that can be an alibi for Republicans who don't want to do anything to not have to do anything. John Kelly is out there saying, I told everyone these disgusting things that, that Trump said about the troops. Well, I told them anonymously in the Atlantic until Trump was out of office, you know, and so so, it, you know, the people who didn't who wanted to discount it could easily discount it because Kelly wasn't up there saying it. Then he kind of finally puts his name to it once Trump is no longer there. I actually think, you know, maybe it wouldn't have an impact if a bunch of Trump's, a bunch of former Trump officials, you know, Kelly, Bill Barr, I mean, basically all of them who, 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 um, everybody who ever worked for Trump. Basically everyone except Stephen Miller and Sarah Huckabee. Um, if they all started making, um, ads and kind of create a group, you know, Trump cabinet ministers against Trump, um, maybe it wouldn't make a big difference, but that's not an excuse for not trying. And so, you know, I don't, I just think that there's this kind of learned helplessness because he's such a, a juggernaut, but actually, you know, Donald Trump was very unpopular and, and is very unpopular. And part of that is because people are constantly speaking out against him and talking about what a disaster he was as, I mean, for Biden, I think it's a difficult moment right now because people aren't really tuned into politics. They're sick of the whole thing. They're depressed about their options. But, you know, I think you can compare it maybe to like the Dobbs decision. The Dobbs decision was leaked. We all knew it was coming, but it didn't make that much of an impact when it was leaked. It still wasn't real. Then it happened and it was an earthquake. So there's these moments when even when you know they're coming, Hmm. they still are kind of pivot points, whether that be, you know, Donald Trump's conviction, whether that be the convention or, you know, there's things that are going to happen that are going to raise the salience. I I, let's follow on that for a moment in terms of if if you are going to talk about Donald Trump, what do you focus on? I mean, there's a whole lot of conflicting guidance out there in a lot of different pieces of reporting. A former Trump official, unnamed, tells the Washington Post that timing is a crucial part of the strategy. You want to remind people at the last minute what kind of crazy they might be getting again. I don't think it works until it's September or October. Meanwhile, the Times reports that Democrats would rather news networks Carry Mr. Trump's rallies live. To watch a Trump rally live now, viewers need to find an online stream or a fringy far-right cable station like Newsmax. They want more Trump all the time because it's led to amnesia not having him live at the rallies, Ben. I mean, how do you make heads or tails over those conflicting ideas about what is most impactful in this kind of saturated landscape of Trump. Deals. I mean, I think that latter point is really interesting because there was sort of a media consensus that yeah. we, we covered Trump too much 
and we sort of allowed him to exist. And if we turned away from him, the whole thing would subside. That obviously was totally false. Zero connection between his approval ratings and how much attention he's getting. I mean, I think, and I think the other challenge that Shelby Talcott wrote in Semaphore this morning is, you know, the issue set that he ran on, immigration, crime, 2016, those were not actually the most salient issues for a lot of voters. They are much more salient now. And that's also a reality Democrats are navigating. So so do you have a position on, you know, as, as a media baron yourself? I mean, when yeah, it comes we should cover to, him. I think that was a that was sort of delusional. And the media. do you think, Michelle, that more exhaustive coverage of what Donald Trump is saying? And I will say it's people who cover Donald Trump a lot. Uh, the focus has been the criminal trials because that is terra incognito. No, nobody's going to accuse you of censoring Donald Trump. Yes, I think that that's fair to say. But there, there is, there has, there have been fewer footholds, I will say. But there is generally less discussion over Trump policy matters like immigration or crime or whatever. Right, or kind of leaks that he's, you know, thinking about setting up mass internment camps. Yes, you know that fact that he's when he, you know, that he uses kind of Hitlerian language about <laughs> extirpating vermin and going after yes, his domestic enemies. We have enemies. covered that part. Yes, right, but I think that you know. I also think there's some revisionist history. I mean, when people look back on 2016, they were running his rallies almost as a sort of, you know, people were sort of gawking at them. There was a kind of, you know, they were kind of giggling about it. And so they did, I think that the media did help build him up kind of unwittingly because it was getting such ratings and it was such a spectacle and they didn't realize how dangerous that is. I think that's very different than showing clips of Donald Trump sounding like Mussolini or showing clips of Donald Trump, you know, praising the January, the, the, the kind of great heroes of January 6th and singing with the January 6th choir. I mean, I just I do think that the Donald Trump who's running now is he's always been a sinister authoritarian figure. He's more so now in a way that I don't think you see unless you either consume a lot of political news or are kind of within his orbit. And you are two different people, probably, if, depending <laughs> right. on where you land in those non-concentric circles. Michelle Goldberg and Ben Smith, my friends, it's great to see you. Thank, Thank you for you. spending part of your early Thanksgiving holiday with me. We have a lot more ahead tonight. Congressman Jamal Bowman joins me to talk about the struggle between warring factions inside his party and what the president should do about it. Fourteen hundred Israelis slaughtered by Hamas, women raped, babies beheaded, over two hundred hostages. But Jamal Bowman was one of just ten votes in Congress against condemning Hamas's terrorism. Tell Jamal Bowman to stand with Israel. That was a new ad now running in the District of New York Congressman Democrat Jamal Bowman. The ad is from the political arm of the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, or APAC, as it is more commonly known, and it is not the first time that APAC has tried to take on progressive members of Congress or even take on Jamal Bowman himself. But it is the first time that APAC's mission is part of a larger battle within the Democratic Party over the Israel-Hamas war. And that fight is most evident in the debate between pro-Israel Democrats and the squad. Congressman Bowman is already facing a potential challenge from Westchester County Executive George Latimer, who says he will make a final decision after returning from a solidarity trip to Israel. Other squad members, including Cori Bush, Ilhan Omar, Summer Lee, and Rashida Tlaib, are all expected to face potential primary challengers as well. As Michelle Goldberg writes in the New York Times, a series of ugly primary campaigns fought over Israel will only widen the progressive political divide. 
But with horror at conditions in Gaza and Jewish fear both ratcheting up, an intraparty clash over the future of the squad now looks inevitable. Joining me now is New York Congressman, Democrat Jamal Bowman. Congressman, thank you for uh, coming here to talk about. I know it's a tricky topic. It's a difficult topic. But um, talk to me a little bit about what this moment has been like as as you sort of navigate a constituency really more pronounced in its division than all, many other members of Congress. Yeah, it's been a traumatic moment. Um, it's been a painful moment. It's been a moment filled with grief and suffering by my Jewish constituents, as well as my Muslim constituents. And so um, it's been multi-layered. You have the behavior of the Israeli government, which needs to be critiqued uh, very strongly, in my belief. My belief. You have the impact of that critique on the Jewish community, both locally in my district and globally. You have Muslims who have felt uh, erased in this whole conversation and even dehumanized as well. When you hear some of the rhetoric coming from Israeli officials towards Palestinians, referring to them as animals. Uh, so it's been multi-layered, multifaceted, filled with very strong emotion. And what I've tried to do is just absorb it, sort of stand in the middle of it, mm -hmm. learn from it. And then use what I learned to govern accordingly in a way that meets the needs of a diverse constituency, as you mentioned. I, I was struck. Michelle Goldberg, who was just our guest in the previous uh, segment, uh, followed your campaign as you uh, your you as you tried to navigate meetings with constituents over on this topic. And she she quotes one one woman who was involved, I believe, with your campaign at one point. Diana Lovett said polarization over the congressman was tearing apart local Democrats. I love him personally. He was lovely and he's amazing. And he was the same warm and open hearted person that he was today. This is at the, mm -hmm. the event that you had. But she had come to believe that their views on the Middle East are irreconcilable. When you hear that, what what is your reaction to that? Oh, thank you for saying I have a big heart. Well, and she, and she said that. that. No, yeah. thank you to her for saying that. Um, I don't think they're irreconcilable. I think for a very long time we've been having one conversation without the other. We have been saying for so long, we are pro-Israel, pro-Israel's right to exist, pro-Israel's right to defend itself and self-determination. But we haven't been saying the same thing about Palestinians. And so what I've been trying to communicate, and this is all, again, based on my learning, I work very closely with Americans for Peace Now, J Street, if not now, uh, Jewish Voices for Peace and many organizations. Israel's safety and security is directly connected to Palestinian freedom, safety, and security. So we've been using a lot of rhetoric around a two-state solution for decades. And when I went there, I saw that we are nowhere near a two-state solution. Myself, as a sitting member of Congress, could not walk through certain checkpoints in the West Bank because I wasn't Jewish. Mm. So... We're using rhetoric, but our policies aren't matching the rhetoric and our policies aren't matching the urgency of the moment. Um, October 7th was a horrible day, horrific day, and Hamas must be condemned and we must get the hostages, hostages back. Absolutely. But condemnation is only step one. How are we going to do the work 
to actually get to a state for Palestinians and do the work here to bring communities together around education and engagement so we could deal with anti-Semitism in a real way, Islamophobia in a real way, racism, sexism, and all the isms that continue to plague us in a real way. We haven't done it here, and we're not doing it globally. Yeah, when you say we haven't done it here, I got to bring in uh, President President Biden because th- there is there are new numbers that NBC has out about how, the president's support among young people, and uh, black voters. And I, I believe, and I don't have the numbers with me here, but I believe it is 70% of voters 18 to 35 do not agree with the way this president has handled the situation, the war in Gaza. Um, what, talk to me about what, what do you attribute that to? Is that, is that the way, is that, is that the sort of one-sidedness, as you call it, in, in this conversation? And, and then I want to talk to you about the way this intersects with um, the black experience. First, in terms of young voters, what does the president need to do differently? Well, it's going to be tough, and it is tough, because young voters were already upset over a variety of things, including how he's handled the climate issue. He's done some good things, and he kind of It's kind of playing a yo-yo with him. He does some good things and they come in and then he does something else that pushes them away. Um, You know, and and the response to the Israel-Gaza conflict, uh, again, the one-sidedness of it has really turned young people away and the BIPOC community away as well. And so, and it's not just the president, it's Congress for the most part. I mean, I'm in a small minority calling for a ceasefire. I mean, the majority, it's growing a little bit. It started as like six or eight, but now it's up to 30, which is really good. But the president hasn't done that. And young people, they want they want peace. They want justice. They want a diplomatic response to what's going on. They want, to, they want us to spend more money on uh, on education and jobs and climate and keeping people out of prison and health care than we spend on war. And this president at the moment is not showing the capacity to do that. And the party and the Congress, not just the party, all of Congress isn't showing the capacity to do that. So I think it's a combination of all these things that's turning young people off. And people of color have been turned off for a while because of lack of comprehensive immigration reform, if you're talking about the Latino community, and no conversation at all about reparations if you're talking about the black community. But we're sending hundreds of billions, spending hundreds of billions of dollars every year on weapons and war, but we can't even have a conversation about reparations? That, those are the things that are happening Do right you now. think the, his position on Israel and Gaza, uh, the war with the Israel war with Hamas, has anything to do with his, I think he's lost about 15% of the black vote in this latest NBC polling. Do you think that that has anything to do with how he's talked about this conflict in particular? I mean, I, I know Ta-Nehisi Coates, the, the, the great writer on race in America, saw a lot of um, similarities in terms of the, the experience of, of what is happening with Palestinians, the, the lack of mobility, the lack of representation, and the black experience in, in America. Um, what's your reaction to that? Yeah, even before I went to the West Bank on my own, well, not on my own, but with J Street, I spoke to Israeli and Palestinian scholars uh, over the phone just to learn more about it. And one of them, I forget his name, uh, told me that we're at the civil rights era moment here in the West Bank. This is like Jim Crow. And when I heard Ta-Nehisi Coe say that, I, I, I felt what he was saying, because although I didn't live during Jim Crow, the Jim Crow South, I read about it. And when I went there, it felt that way. It felt suffocating. It felt stifling. It felt 
immobile. And again, for me as a sitting member of Congress who has voted in support of the Iron Dome, right? So I felt what he what he was talking about there. It is um, an extraordinarily complicated moment for, for a lot of people. It's a wrenching moment for a very specific group of people. I'm deeply grateful for your time and thoughts. I know it's complicated. Thank you for joining me tonight. Thank you. Congressman Jamal Bowman, thanks for your time. That's our show.